Welcome back to the Women Without Kids podcast. I'm your host, Ruby Warrington, and this podcast series was created from research interviews that I conducted for my forthcoming book of the same title, which will be out in early 2023. In this episode, you'll hear me in conversation with evolutionary biologist Gillian Ragsdale, who I heard speaking on a BBC Radio 4 segment on childlessness while I was in the early stages of developing my manuscript. She said something on that show that stopped me in my tracks, and I quote, It has never been necessary for any animal, including humans, to set out wanting to have children. What they have to have is a sex drive. As long as you're having miscellaneous sex, a lot of it, and most of it non-procreative, chances are you will have children. After the kids come along, it's very useful if at that point there is a natural urge to look after the child. Now, as somebody who had spent my entire adult life waiting for what we are led to believe is a biological desire to have children, in women in particular, to kick in, I obviously had to hear what else Gillian had to say about this. The result is the conversation in this episode, in which it transpires that the baby fever that many people do genuinely experience is as much about social and cultural conditioning as it is about our biology. I won't give too much more away in this intro, suffice it to say that we go to some fascinating places on the subject of human reproduction from an evolutionary perspective, and how even beyond our biology, evolutions in human belief systems, culture and technologies have all greatly impacted and will continue to impact our procreative outcomes. This is Gillian Ragsdale. Thanks so much for joining me, Jill. Um, So when I first heard you speak the words, there is no such thing as a biological maternal instinct, a little part of me inside just sort of wanted to jump up and down and and celebrate in a way. And I think it's partly because having never felt said biological maternal instinct myself and sort of been waiting for it my whole life since childhood, actually sort of waiting for it to kick in, I'd always had the sense that perhaps the fact I hadn't felt a strong, what felt like biological and therefore perhaps physical urge to have a child um, meant that there was something wrong with me or that there was something missing biologically, you know, something, some, something wasn't quite firing in my system. So hearing it was, it was very sort of validating to hear you speak those words and also quite shocking, I think, because I think generally we do, you know, the general sort of assumption is that there is a, a maternal instinct, a, a biological imperative in women. So I'd love if you could just start there with sort of um, explaining what you meant by that and, and how you have reached that conclusion. Okay, I think um, funnily, I mean, for someone in who's a biologist, it's it's a very unremarkable conclusion, to be honest. When I first was just quite casually writing about it, I was quite astonished at how astonished people were. Um, so that there's two, there's quite a few parts to unpack there: the fact that it's a maternal instinct and the fact that it's an instinct. So these two things are kind of overlapping problems with the whole idea. I mean. First off, we don't really have instincts in that way. Uh, as you go through mammals and into primates and humans in particularly, the whole point is that our behavior is flexible, that we're not driven by hormones, that we can make overriding decisions, that hormones might have some biases, but we don't really have 
a lot of really primary instincts that we are just commanded by, like, not like my, my cat or something like this. I mean, you know, I, in, in theory, I can control my urge to eat, which I don't think my cats can. They're, they should be downstairs right now. Um, and they're very driven. And I don't think you can see it in them. They, you know, they, you'd have to physically pull them off a, a piece of food. I mean, it, and the idea that thing, well, one of my cats is getting quite fat, actually. And really, they should think twice about tucking in. But I don't think for a moment it's going to occur to her that, um, you know, she might want to rein that in. So, it, I mean, at the most basic level, our instincts are not really instincts in the way that people think. But then you get towards something like the maternal instinct. And biologically, you have to, people think, oh, well, they think that it's just a normal thing in all animals, particularly mammals. But it isn't at all. There, are, there's no, there is no instinct um, of that kind in any mammal. It's not just humans. You know, mice don't reproduce because they're thinking, I really feel like I want a baby mouse. It's just going to be the most fulfilling. They don't. They just, they just have sex with some random mouse and they produce mice. So you could, certainly before you have a child, there's, no sele- there's really no selection pressure to have sex in order to have a child. It's just a completely unnecessary step. I mean, we have responses to baby faces and soft toys and things like that. Um, and you, but that's a, it's fairly universal. But that is kind of a long way divorced from actually wanting to physically have a, a child and take care of a child. And I mean, what happens when you have a child is a bit is a bit different. I mean, you can cut this story into two halves: there's the before child version and the after child version, which may or may not be linked. But there, there's no, there's certainly no reason why any female mammal should be thinking that they're having sex in order to have a child. And I always think, if you think of it that the other way around, does anybody in their right mind ever think that men go out there and having sex because they want to have children, really? I mean, you know, no, but people, would think, people wouldn't be asking about that. They wouldn't be wondering about that. Um, but this is one of those areas where apparently biological instincts and really hardcore thinking like that is, a quite, is, is acceptable in this day and age, um, funnily enough. Absolutely. Well, you said you mentioned that one of the things that sort of immediately is a bit of a red flag, actually, when we start thinking about the maternal instinct is that it is specific to women, biological women. Mm. You know, the idea that this is something that only women experience when if we're thinking about it takes, you know, a sperm and an egg to create a mm. child, then surely if this was a sort of um, evolutionary imperative, then both sexes would have the same instinct to procreate. But as you went on to elucidate on this program, what we do have is a sex drive, which is oh, therefore, and so you'll bet, <laughs> and, we, and we do, we do indeed, we have a sex drive. And so um, I'm, I'm, so does this mean that you're saying that um, ultimately our sex drive is not linked to our procreative urges, any procreative urges that we may feel? It is purely... What, what, what is the purpose of the sex drive then? Well, it's got a couple of purposes. And again, it's something that's morphed a bit as you go through. You come through the mammal story, the primary story, you start to see the whole sex story change. And in a lot of animals, you really only have sex when the animal's fertile and they're going to reproduce. Now, in the, they're still not doing it with any kind of the, the proximate drive is, this, is, is just to have sex. The ultimate that they don't really feel, the biological impairment is to reproduce. Now, human females are very unusual because they have concealed ovulation and we have sex all the way around our cycle. We don't just, you know, we're not like the cats and dogs and monkeys. It's an it's a every day of the month affair in, in theory. Uh, 
which, you, you know, that begs the question, what's that for? Because it means that by default, most of the sex that humans have is not reproductive. And so the, what, why are we expending this energy? What's that about? It's got to be for a reason, because that's quite a big shift, biologically speaking. So there's got to be a reason there. And it is about attachment. It is about securing some kind of attachment between the pair. And that is partly around um, future caregiving. And it goes back to the role of the fact, fact that this is just one sex we're talking about here. Mm. Uh, compared to, I mean, compared to other animals, human fathers are, you know, quite quite motivated and quite involved. I mean, most re- most of the studies and surveys, you will never find that there's an equivalence. But you do find, if you're looking to ask, you know, do, do people get this visceral urge to have a baby, you will find there's quite a lot of men who do feel it. Um, not usually as many as women, but it is there. And and after the fact, how many want more children and this kind of thing. And you will find that um, it, it is, it's not a complete, certainly not completely all or nothing. And, but the whole idea of that, um, yeah, there's, there's certainly no correlation between this actually having sex and having reproduction. I think there's been a few surveys done where they found that actually it's the inverse. If you try and match people's desire for children with their desire for sex, you often find that they're actually inversely related, which kind of makes sense biologically speaking, because in animals, you put your energy either into your reproductive phase or your caretaking phase. A lot of people are kind of more interested in the reproduction phase than the, than the caretaking phase, which kind of makes sense. Right. Well, the caretaking phase is a lot more arduous, less pleasurable and offers less immediate rewards than the reproduction phase, right? (laughs) Which is potentially why it has been kind of lumped largely onto women's shoulders. I suppose, Mm -hmm. you know, this gets into the kind of conversation around sort of sexual equality, equality between the between the biological sexes, you know, when you're so when so for anybody who's listening, who is thinking, well, I do actually feel a really, a really strong, what feels like a physical urge or desire to become a parent, to become a mother, to have a child of my own specifically. Where is that coming from then? I'm actually, I'm actually very curious about that because I think that's a real phenomenon. And I don't want to betray the sisterhood here, but I actually have an IVF baby. So I'm not much of a poster child for not for being child free, to be perfectly honest. Um, so it, I think that's it, that in some ways is the thing that, logically requires explanation the fact that you that I think there is a genuine desire and I don't think it's entirely explained by social role models um, there is some of that especially when you go cross-culturally and I've lived in you know in other parts of the world where there's no life for a woman who doesn't have children it's just such a disaster and you, you almost can't have this conversation because how can you possibly disentangle that that sense of complete exclusion and failure and, and make any kind of rational judgment about it. But once you take that away, which in our modern Western societies, you're, you are getting starting to see that fall away. You're still left, I think, with some people who do feel a very genuine desire. And I think it's because there is some genuine, genuine biology in there. There, there is some, uh, and it's, some of it is context driven. I mean, it depends on the kind of experiences and exposure that you've had to family and babies in your life, mm. other things that are going on. There are all sorts of things that can kind of, tip off and kind of push it that way and there are just individual differences but I think the important thing is that there's no there hasn't been enough pressure on this to make it a universal phenomena and so you get this it's like a lot of things where we seem very poor accepting the fact that there's a lot of individual differences in just about everything we, we're not we, we're, we're desperate to know what is the norm for things but there's a fantastic 
it is a big range. I mean, I know lots of people who who, who clearly have this, and I, and despite the fact that I have this, you know, hard work for child, I, I'm I'm in lots of ways I, I don't fall into that very well. Even when I had my own baby, I remember being at a meeting with somebody somewhere, and there was a woman with a baby across the room, and the woman I was talking to said, "Oh, I just I want to talk to that woman because I just want to see that baby," and I couldn't help myself. I just turned to her and said, "I don't really do babies," and she just looked at me like I. I said I was going to eat it or something. And I came home and complained to my husband. And he said to me, I said, but what if it had been a kitten? And he's quite right. He's quite right. I would have been over there like a shot cooing over this kitten. In fact, the fact that babies are not like furry kittens, that's been, I mean, evolution has just really missed something there. I mean, we would have, and yeah, I'd have been all over a kitten. So it's like I said, we have these triggers for things, you know, the, the cuteness, the furriness, the little stumpiness that cats and things have. I mean, they're irresistible, but, you know, finding something like that irresistible and saying, well, that means that you want to have a baby. It's a very big jump. And therefore, dedic- having a baby there, meaning mm-hmm. translating as therefore dedicating your life to yeah. the vocation of parenthood, ultimately. Oh, yes, yeah. absolutely. You know, if, if we, you know, in this whole caretaking thing, I think it's so natural. Do you really? Well, it's a great shame, isn't it, that all people aren't small and cute because they have a lot of the same needs as babies and people are not queuing up to look after all people because mm-hmm. they're not like, they, they don't trigger that. Those, unfortunately, all those cute, cute urges. And it just shows you what, what those, you know, how, how biased we are when it's packaged in a, like a baby seal or something. And it's just packaged Absolutely. properly. This is very interesting. I, I through, just through my own sort of research and, and thinking around this, I sort of, well, I guess I didn't identify it. I'm sure it's been out there for a long time, but I sort of realized that actually there has to be, as with so many other areas of human experience, something that I've called a motherhood spectrum, and that some people mm. are just naturally more inclined to the vocation of parenting, whether that's, you know, their, the, the physical urge they feel, their skills at nurturing and caregiving, the desires for their life, Mm. other goals they might have, their basic personality, their family background, the place that they were born, the culture that they were raised in. And it it just sort of seems to make sense that all of these influences would impact whether or not a person is ready and desiring to be a parent and to become a mother, which I think is really interesting. I feel the same way about cats. <laughs> and I actually, it's making me laugh because um, one of the first conversations I remember having with my mother when I was about five years old was just, I couldn't understand why people cooed over babies and would go all gooey and thought they were so cute. I was like, they're kind of disgusting. And I was like, look, at, but baby animals are so cute. <laughs> <laughs> it's like what was going on there <laughs> I do find babies much cuter now than I did then and I'm sure actually it was partly to do with the fact that I had a young baby brother who cried all the time and took all my mother's attention away from me <laughs> you know so I think that kind of influenced me as well so when when I first reached out you did say that you were in the midst of um, you know potentially writing a book around this sort of subject yourself I'd love if you could share a little bit more about your own kind of research in this area yeah well, I was in, looking at interest in this mm, area yeah well I was looking at quite a few different sort of topics and family um anthropological family type topics and at one point I was thinking of focusing a bit more on on the motherhood area and I was having a and I was looking at some of the things that you're you're talking about I was interested in the fact that you know it, it, 
given that I don't think there's a universal drive, and I think that's why so many women are confused about the whole thing, because once you strip away all the cultural expectation and everything else, if you don't have a universal push for it, then then if you take the social role away, well, a lot of women are going to be left thinking, well, what's in this for me? I'm not sure I really fancy this very much. But but then on the other hand, you do have this phenomenon called baby fever, where people just get a bit gripped by it. Mm. And I was interested myself, because um, to me, that we, I always thought that was a little more peculiar. It seemed to be perfectly reasonable that people wouldn't feel that, feel that. But I thought that was interesting that if you take all that away, you're still left with people who feel this. And sometimes it comes on later or sometimes they've always felt it so what is it that's tipping the balance there you know we know that it's not related to the sex drive it's something quite different we know that positive and negative experiences independently influence it so for example if you were irritated by your little brother that might not make you feel whereas other people have looked after younger siblings and actually that can make them feel much more open to looking after children so, but the positive and negative experience seem to work independently. You can be influenced by both at the same time. So it's quite complicated. Mm. Um, there's age. Um, it, it tends to increase a bit with age, which is, makes sense as well, because as the fertility declines, it's kind of, you know, you're going to get Custer's last stand, get, get that baby in there. Uh, well, yeah, and there's a lot of pre- there's so much kind of cultural messaging around like the biological clock ticking mm. and you better hurry up. And if you're going to do this and I can't help but read that some of that sort of panic almost that can set in as a a genuine fear of sort of being left behind or missing out or fear of that maybe one might regret not having, not not embarking on this kind of like once in a lifetime adventure, fear of not fitting in, fear of judgment from family, the friend group, fear of being left out of a friend group where everybody else has children. So it seems like, and yes, it is extremely, exceedingly complex, as complex as we are as individuals in a way, because it goes back to that thing about, well, what are all of the different influences that are triggering these, what can feel like very visceral kind of urges and desires, Mm. you know? Mm. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I think that, I mean, I I had my daughter quite late in life for, for and it was a mixture of circumstances and other reasons as uh, you know and so i know quite a few people in that situation and some for some people it's not that, that quite often the people who are having children later in life have actually always been quite interested in having children mm-hmm. but you do have a subgroup in there who perhaps came to the idea quite late sometimes it's the partner that kind of pushes it's like well are we going to do this or are we not and uh, there's quite a lot of I mean if you're in a in a relationship then there is often some pressure from the male partner to say well are we are we are we not having children and for them it's a bit less of an they can have their legacy they can do everything else at the same time so it's a bit of an unfortunate uh, predicament that it's the woman who's as well she's got to get on with it you know you, you, you start to hit about 40 and then you're really starting to push the biology a little bit and uh, and then if you probably by that age you've got a job and a profession as well to think about it mm-hmm. uh, so there's a lot more at stake for women which is very unfortunate um, mm-hmm. for, for men it's much easier because they you know like my own husband I mean he's a pretty dedicated sort of father but basically he didn't break a stride you know he just carried on going to work carried on traveling for work and I was me that mommy tracked and that's that's the reality of it is the <laughs> reality the situation. and I wonder if that's I mean well I do believe that this is only this again sort of tracks back to the whole idea about like true sort of equality between the biological sexes does require a lessening of this pressure social pressure cultural pressure on women to pursue child rearing as the kind of their ultimate vocation and ultimate purpose I think 
Well, it requires more than that. It requires proper child, uh, yes. uh, proper sharing. Absolutely. Of the, of the, I mean, consequences, you know, I, I can remember, you know, I talked to young women and they've got these and they say, oh, well, we're going to share it and we're going to go, we'll each go part time. But, you know, the reality and I kind of roll my eye, oh, yeah, really, because the reality of the way that things are structured is that you will take both of you a massive financial and professional hit. And the reality is that when you've got a family on the line, you t- sometimes feel that to maximize your family resources, that's not actually the most useful way to go. And so there right. are all sorts of reasons why in the end. With the best of intentions, people end up not not really going that route. So, you know, one is one is not wanting having the pressure to have a child. In any case, that's something a couple has to rationalise between them. But then, it's what what happens? What is a, what is the consequence when you do? Yeah, and uh, can we make that a bit fairer? Absolutely. Which hopefully, I mean, hopefully more. It's interesting, isn't it? There's, I feel there is this sort of underlying sort of pressure and slight panic, particularly in nations where the birth drop is dropping the most, the birth rate is dropping the most steeply. Come along, women, get with the program, start reproducing again already. And the argument being, well, make it, one of the arguments being, well, support us in that, you know, in whatever ways that, whatever that might look like. Um, is obviously one way of thinking about that. I'm and, and speaking of this sort of like global reproductive slowdown, and this is where my interest was really peaked. Like I explained, mm. I never wanted to have children and always felt very othered in that decision and, and like internalized a lot of shame around there's something wrong with me, you know? Um, so I was curious about investigating what was happening with that. But then, I mean, I'm 45 now, and it's been very interesting over the past couple of years just to see so many of my peers, women of my generation, coming to the end of our child-rearing years without children. And I actually realized that perhaps there were many more people of my generation, women born in the 70s, mm-hmm. um, late 60s and 70s, who are actually, who have all along been making other plans or pursuing other desires. And so I think that's, it's very interesting to then kind of map that against what we see globally in terms of statistics of the birth rate, just dropping, dropping, dropping quite steeply here in the U S and many other sort of like more developed nations. Oh, absolutely. Um, From an, from an evolutionary like biology perspective, what's happening with this because I look at a trend like that and I'm you know I'm just I'm sort of you know my background is is journalism and I've always been sort of mapping social trends and things I look at a trend like that and I think well something momentous is happening for the evolution of womankind um what what's the perspective what's your perspective on this kind of global Mm. slowdown well there's some good good parts to that and bad parts to that I mean without doubt there is going to I mean it's a whole other subject really but without doubt not probably in our lifetime, but there is going to be a massive population crash globally. And it's a, it's got to be a good thing. It'll be very painful for various economic reasons while it's happening. Mm. But it, it, it has to happen and, and it definitely will happen as soon as women become educated principally and move into a slightly different circumstance, no matter where they are in the world, once they cross from that socioeconomic group where they become more educated and more plugged in, they, they, they're birth rate just plummets it goes over a cliff i mean i work a lot with sometimes with uh, refugees and women who are coming over from the middle east and i can tell you they one of the first things some of them ask for is birth control when they mm. get here and wow. that's partly because they can see how difficult and expensive it's going to be to have seven eight kids in, in a little tiny house in the uk under the system and it all starts to look very very unattractive um 
So that yes, there's definitely going to be a crash. Evolutionarily speaking, of course, it, we've unplugged from biology because we've got birth control. If we didn't have birth control, we'd be living, well, I don't know how we'd be living. We'd be living a rat warren by now. We'd be pretty desperate, actually. Um, so yeah, I mean, birth control is, is the big factor that we've introduced which was is going to which potentially gives women a, a choice which isn't popular with some populations of course mm. um and they are making a choice and what will happen eventually is is very interesting because i mean a crash i think would be great what will happen at the end of the crash who knows someone will have to give that some thought uh, if they want to sell the idea of stabilizing the population eventually i think there are women who who want to have more children and who would have more children um if the circumstances were easier, I think mm. people are much more, women are, it's not always a woman's choice. I mean, you, you most most women would prefer not to be single parents. They'd like to have it because for all sorts of simple logistical reasons, it's easier to have somebody else on board. And a lot of men are not actually that willing to commit to the idea until a bit later in life. And they're a bit kind of, oh, they're not quite sure about it. So there's, there's, those are, those are constraints as well. And like you say, you know, it's not, it's, unless you make it an awful lot easier for women to just do this on their own, if necessary, it's not, it's going to be a hard sell. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a very far cry from, you know, the, there's that old, age old saying it takes a village to raise a, a child mm. and we've come such a very long way from those more sort of tribal communal um settings in mm. which the child rearing is more easily shared by multiple adults versus just a mother and but versus than all the, the pressure being on the one relationship between the two parents yes i mean that's not been a very easy move for, i think for, for women I mean, women are far too isolated maternally Mm. Uh, they, they spend far too much time on their own with this baby, uh, It's complete, which is completely unnatural. It's no wonder that women get quite often depressed. And, you know, depression and anxiety are completely antithetical to caregiving. I mean, we know, you know, there's plenty of research on that. that these, and in mammals, generally, if you're stressed or you're anxious, then you will, your strategy is to either pull out from reproduction or to reproduce what we call fast and furiously it's quantity over quality and so instead of investing in the offspring you just have them but you're, you're not too worried about looking after them or doing much with them because it's, you know, the general stress signal that's coming through is that the world is a bit of a dangerous and this, you're not getting much support this is a difficult situation so just have a few kids if you can and move on basically don't mm-hmm. invest don't it's not it's a quantity over quality issue and I think that is coming through with a lot of women who are very isolated and feel that they've not got enough support. And it triggers that same sense that this isn't a good situation. And it, and it interferes with their ability to really invest in those children. And it's not for the stress reasons that people might think, you know, you're not on the open prairie with a whole bunch of lions or anything, but it, they know they're not getting support and they know that something's wrong, basically. Right, right. Yeah, very, very interesting. And when you then kind of like look at, I mean, it's interesting when I was first pitching this book, my agent was sort of like, well, you know, the pandemic, there's probably going to be a baby boom after the pandemic, everybody locked down at home. And actually what we've seen is the opposite, like the 2020 US census showed, showed, Mm. I think, the steepest drop off in the birth rate in over 100 years. Um, And I just think that that anxiety piece, absolutely, among the younger women that I speak to, particularly fears about the climate, fears about, you know, environmental climate and political and social climate are very much Mm. kind of on their mind when they're making decisions. And, you know, actually 
utilizing the choices that they now have over whether or not to, to reproduce. Those are really big factors. What you, I, I was reading on um, online that your specialty is the evolution of human cognition. Mm-hmm. And I think this is, this is about the mental processes underpinning social behavior, language, and moral reasoning. Could you just explain a little bit how that area of research kind of dovetails with this conversation about um, yeah, the drop-off in the birth rate and changing attitudes towards motherhood? Well, I suppose I, I, I was interested primarily in um, how the, the human mind came to be the way that it is that how you know it didn't come from uh, I don't take a sort of a blank slate perspective I take an evolutionary perspective and therefore you're looking and backwards and thinking okay what were the primary drivers what was in process and what was it that got selected and moved on in humans and didn't in anything else you know why humans why not why not anything else Mm. and as we as we looked at one of the things you see really early on before you even get to modern humans is this move towards pair bonding, for example. And I think that has, I think the tension between the attachment between um, a romantic partnership of whatever kind and between the parent and a child, there's quite a bit of tension going on there. You know, yeah, I was just reading something by the by today. There's one of these, because, oh gosh, when you do become a parent, you, the, oh, the vicious arguments that take off over parenting. It's just, it's just incredible. Anyway, so people, as one of the things that are going on about whether, oh, why do we make these poor babies sleep on their own? Why do we do that? It's so unnatural. And actually it is unnatural. But one of the reasons we do it is because people are trying to preserve the pair bonding. Because, you know, in our modern life, we don't feel comfortable having sex with our two-year-old in the same bed. I mean, there are cultures that probably would. It's not necessarily the case. But most people today would feel that's, you know, just not, not really the thing. And so you make a choice. And there is a big tension there. But so some of the things like this, you think, well, where is that coming from? And so, the, and like I say, the decrease, the big one is the decrease in the whole role of instincts um, generally. I mean, if you were, if, I, if you were reborn with no mental knowledge or history or you couldn't remember anything that you'd ever done, absolutely nothing, uh, but somehow were sort of sensible and you're on a desert island or some island somewhere, um, you nobody in that situation would start thinking about having a baby because they don't know what a baby is. There's no, you know, what, what, what would it mean to have a maternal instinct if you'd never seen a baby? What would it mean? But you'd, you'd try to eat something. You would try to eat something. You'd pick something and you'd put it in your mouth. You'd be desperate to eat and drink something. You'd, you'd be pooing. You'd probably sleep. Uh, you might play with yourself a bit. There are all sorts of things you would do, but it would never occur to you that you wanted a baby. Uh, if you start to see other animals that looked a bit cute, you might start to feel like to want to take care of them. But, you know, you, you're a long way from something that we could call really a primal instinct there. I'm pausing us here to remind you that what you're listening to is one of hundreds of research interviews that I conducted for my new book, Women Without Kids, The Revolutionary Rise of an Unsung Sisterhood. The book is out in early 2023, and if you pre-order now, you can also get a free book club guide and an invite to an online launch event hosted by me. Just go to www.womenwithoutkids.com and enter your order number to get on the list. Now back to the episode. 
absolutely fascinating when you really paint the picture like that. It really is. And if anything, when a well, this is interesting. So you did also mention on that Radio 4 program that once a child is in the picture, there is a natural instinct or a natural um, urge, desire to care for that child. Ideally, there is a natural Ideally. instinct. Ideally, <laughs> there is some sort of an instinct to take care of that child. Because um, I was going to say, well, on that desert island, you might, you know, there's another, a, a baby comes along, there's another mouth to feed, there's another, you know, there's like another human, like potentially sharing or taking away from the resources, the limited resources that are available to me on this desert island. Mm. But if it's my child, then I have a vested interest somehow in ensuring the survival of this child. Partly, I suppose, as I'm talking it out now, because that ensures the survival of my genetic Absolutely. imprint. Yeah. And so one, th- one question I have as well is around, um, I suppose, yes, does the, does the urge to nurture and care for sort of, how much does it extend to people beyond our own biological family, our own kind of like immediate sort of tribal grouping? You know, I've, and I mentioned this because I've been looking at things like the impact of climate change and how mm. there is obviously a lot of fear around environmental issues, but that the unwillingness of the most resourced individuals to really take it seriously is because these individuals have the resources should it be required to protect themselves and their families? And so mm-hmm. screw everybody else, basically. Yeah. It's not of a concern to me. And it sort of seems like there, I don't know, there's an evolutionary sort of tussle happening between that selfish and self-serving instinct to kind of care for myself and my descendants versus mm-hmm. a broader kind of empathetic and caretaking perspective for the, the wider human family. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this whole thing about, you know, because we all do, I mean, we all have, like I say, we think kittens are cute. We've got a certain, that that is something that's, you can see it in the way that the pupils react to cute things. I mean, we all have a thing for nurturing and caregiving, but evolutionarily speaking, um, that wouldn't, you wouldn't have known that it was particularly about your child. I mean, when you have a child or you're around a very young child a great deal, it does prompt um, oxytocin it prompts the hormones that are going to trigger that very strongly and mm. I mean, oxytocin is a bonding hormone it's released in orgasm so that you will bond with your partner it's released in childbirth so you bond with your child but if you just handle or around a child a great deal you, you can you can generate the same kind of thing um, but those nurturing feelings in general are pretty general they are pretty general uh, the problem is that in our modern lives, we know who our family are. Back in the day, you, you wouldn't have even known who your family were. You go back 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 years, people didn't even know what paternity was. They thought that maybe some tribes still think, you know, well, may, the, the, every, woman, every man a woman sleeps with is the, partly the father of the baby. It's very handy. What a very handy belief That to sounds have. great. <laughs> it does. Really useful. It spreads out the responsibility. Yeah, it's called partable paternity. So back in the day, people had no idea. And so you, what you had to have, it's a bit like the same idea that people want sex and then therefore they'll have a child. People had to have these behaviors in place. And because we tended to live in very small groups that tended to be kin-based, it took care of itself. Mm. So if you had this nurturing feelings that tended to be a bit stronger with the people that you spent more time with, with the kids that you spent more time with, the likelihood that they were related to you 
was very high and it all just kind of fell out naturally. In modern life, it's not quite so much like that. And also we have this idea as well about who we're related to and who is our legacy and who we're passing on to, which you probably you wouldn't have done as men in particular, we wouldn't have had much idea. And that interferes a great deal. I think people do, I think you're right. I mean, people do have an idea of looking after their own, um, which is by, unfortunately, it does biologically make a little bit of sense, unfortunately. But we are lucky in the sense that we can, what, what you know, Pinker always says about widening the moral circle, you know, the fact that we, you know, that people are even considering things like veganism. I mean, that is widening the moral circle to the extreme, you know, um, and that we're actually able to do those things is actually it's quite encouraging. It is. And it goes back to what you were saying about the beginning, that as humans, our, our human cognition does give us the ability to override what might be our more kind of like base, I say basic, but like kind of, you know, genetic imperatives, you know, um, we actually, because of our ability to um, take in information and disseminate information about the world that we live in. And the fact that we're now being exposed to so much information about people and countries and tribes that we would never have encountered <laughs> thousands of years ago um, does is perhaps shaping the way that we think about our duty of care, like and our the, 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 the people, the human beings, the animals that we are responsible to. Yes, it's probably a bit I mean, idealistic, yeah. but um, yeah. I don't know. I do think it's encouraging to even think about this conversation, you know. I think it's encouraging that we're able to do it at all mm. because, you know, in some ways it's quite a remarkable feat that we're able to do it at all. I mean, there are some issues I think it's useful for people to be really aware of consciously. And one of those is the impact of things like stress and anxiety, which, of course, you have. People look at the news, look at the pandemic, they look at climate change and they feel very stressed. Unfortunately, that you'd think that it would be useful to feel that you want to be nicer to each other and more empathetic when you're under stress. Sadly, tends to be the other way around. So I think the trick there is to really catch ourselves and know that that's the case. And unfortunately, we get a lot more us and them. Um, and it, mm-hmm. it's just part of the, you know, the mammals on the prairie survival instinct. But we have the ability to to think and stop and think and say, okay, I'm feeling like this. I'm not feeling as warm about those people who don't seem very much like me because I'm feeling threatened. You know, right. it's going to make you feel much more us and them. But And I think if you can catch yourself and catch, get people to realize up front that that's why they're feeling this. I think it's a big help rather than just accept it. Especially if you can then see the idea that actually how we can kind of perhaps tackle some of these bigger issues that are impacting all of us and creating Mm. higher levels of stress and anxiety is by banding together and not by fighting, continuing to fight each other for what limited resources, for example, might still be available. Oh, absolutely. It does feel like a stretch to kind of be thinking about the world in those terms. No, but it's it, the thing is with we have a, this we have an evolved mechanism for dealing with chronic stress like this and an acute stress and threat. But it was really it wasn't evolved for the kind of social threat that we tend to perpetuate amongst ourselves. It's really for physical and threats that come and then when they go, we calm down, we get, we start to feel more pro-social, we start to be more empathetic. The problem for humans is that we can perpetuate as the social part of the threat. Mm-hmm. all on its own and that can just go in a cycle and go on and on and on and on and that's quite dangerous and so we, we we are a bit in danger of, of feeling under threat and by our very own 
mechanisms perpetuating that stress and threat in a way which if it wasn't a perpetual social cycle, a vicious cycle of threat, it would naturally come start to tail off. It would naturally have ups and downs. That, that I think, is where we are in a very different place to, say, a lot of other animals, mm. Where, mm. which would, where it would work differently. Mm-hmm. And I can even see that with my cat. <laughs> you know, he will he will sort of go into attack mode and get quite sort of enthusiastic about like killing whatever toy it is. And then in the next instant, he's purring on my lap as oh, if yeah. nothing had happened. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. He doesn't hold a grudge. He doesn't. I mean, not much anyway. <laughs> but we, we do. Humans, humans hold grudges. Um, yeah. And they, they will remember and they'll tell their children. It'll be, you know, you get a blood feud and it goes forward. We say, well, they did that. And, you know, you know, don't trust the Germans and all the rest of it. And it just goes on and on and on. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, a book came out last year that you're, you're possibly aware of called Countdown. And it was looking at sort of um, the environmental impact of industrialization. And when I say environmental, I include the kind of like stress inherent in living in this highly industrialized world. And it was mapping it against the steep, steep decline in human fertility, a 40% decrease in sperm counts over the past 40 years and much higher instances of, um, I think it's, um, what's it called? Something ovarian reserve when women have fewer mm-hmm. viable eggs yeah. than they should at their age. So people, women experiencing fertility issues at a much younger age, experiencing much higher issues of um, miscarriage also, incidents mm-hmm. of miscarriage. And so I'm, I'm, that made me really curious about how these you know, this man-made sort of developments that impact our biology can also be framed as sort of part of our evolution. Well, evolution is not really interested in those sorts of things. I mean, right. evolution is an evolution is a is a piece of mathematics. It's an it's an algorithm, and it just says that you know things which tend to produce um, reproduce themselves successfully, and, and it doesn't care about whether you're happy. Doesn't care about um, biology. Does not care a jot whether you're happy. Which is why, if you're under stress, it responds by bringing out changes that will actually make you very anxious or make you, they'll make you aggressive, make you anxious, right. make your life a misery. Because somewhere out there, there might have been a mouse that got really stressed and responded by just living quietly to itself and not reproducing because it's not really good time to reproduce and left a nice happy life, but it died out. It's a cul- evolutionary cul-de-sac. So what they prefer, when times are rough, they say, no, you can be anxious when you have to, but you also have to be aggressive. You have to be out there and whatever you do, keep reproducing. I don't care how miserable it makes you. You've got to keep going. And it's nothing to do with happiness. So, I mean, things like the industrial revolution, the, the only impact that has in terms of evolution is it's it's the product of our brain evolution for yeah. sure tool yeah. use and we're too smart too clever for our own good by half uh, that's and it, but it certainly impacts i mean human evolution doesn't stop it hasn't stopped so we are putting selective pressures on ourselves Mm. The the selective pressures are very complicated because we've got birth control mm. and you can while away some speculation thinking about who is having the most children because that's what it's all about. Mm. And, uh, you know, if, if, if there's if there's something to be explained and something that could be explained in a way which might be partly heritable, or even in terms of ideas, because you might have heard of something called memetics, with memetics is the, the ideas equivalent of genetics. So people have used the same kind of algorithms to explain the spread and survival of I- some ideas. 
it's the same as the way that you get the spread and survival of some genes. So you can get Mm. it on two levels. And this is very relevant to things like fertility and reproduction as well. And, you know, so if you can see how some of those ideas um, survive better, and and it does have a bearing on, yeah, on on how we've changed and how we can, how we respond to that. But it's more of an out, I mean, and it will have an impact on our evolution. Evolution acts over a long time, but it does act. I mean, there will be changes for sure, I bet. Mm-hmm. Well, it's in, so that's where the word meme comes from, I suppose. Yes, it is. So you yes. could say that the idea that there's a biological maternal instinct is a meme that mm. has survived, a meme from a meme perpetuated by the patriarchy that has survived and ensured in the in the to ensure that women feel this this pressure that mm. I must reproduce because it is my biological imperative to be a mother. Some of the worst things as well, I have to say, so the worst memes around for women have been perpetuated by other women. Right. It's like, you know, it's a bit like slaves that are in love with their own slavery. I mean, there, there, there's, some, there's some nasty ideas out there and where there, there seem to be key women who are stakeholders and gatekeepers and will push back furiously on women who try to push push through it you know and there's some awful practices that are you know around the world and, and then mainly a lot of those this is enforced by other women um so it's unfortunately it's a bit of a joint attack i mean you've got well, quite I a lot to- when i when i talk about patriarchy i'm sort of talking about an ideology that actually is imprinted all of our brains regardless mm. of our biological sex yeah it's yeah just sort of the lens through which we see the world we've inherited mm. that the meme of patriarchy, I suppose, you yeah. know, it's just so lodged into our kind of um, understanding of our place in the world um, that it takes a lot of cognitive sort of um, grappling to be able to even see it in ourselves sometimes. And oh, I think yes. what you're describing yeah. is an example of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what is it? I can't remember the name of the feminist writer who says that patriarchy is like a sticky web that covers everything, which is certainly, Mm. certainly the case. You can't really pick it off anything. It's so, it's so absolutely out there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, People, people try and it's painful and challenging and causes so much sort of um, disruption. And I think we're seeing a lot of that currently actually, which is really interesting. It's a really interesting, it feels like obviously evolution sort of takes thousands of years to kind of reveal itself and do its thing, but it can't help but feel sometimes, particularly with the advent of these new kind of hyper novel technologies that have really changed the way that we interface with the world, that we're in, it feels like we're in a very tense sort of evolutionary period, you know? Mm. It is. But I mean, in terms of biology, most of this is happening in the realm of ideas. Yes. Because um, because we don't have that biological selection process going on, but it's certainly happening in the terms of culturally. And I mean, in, in terms of memetics, we can talk about cultural evolution proceeding yes. in very similar ways, in, but over shorter time periods. Right. So we've got tremendously strong influences on yeah, memetics and cultural evolution, some of which might also be reflected in some biology, but that the biological side is very, very, very unclear at the moment. We're seeing some small things, little things like, you know, little things, for example, you see things like in some of the very bigger cities around, uh, around the world, you get selection for increased head size in the birth of children because we're intervening in, ch- in childbirth and we're changing the nature of childbirth, which is always, always difficult. And um, so, you, and that's happened, you know, you can measure it. It's measurable. It mm. just shows you that these things are measurable. You, you, these little changes do happen, but they're not always what you expect, I think. Mm. Very interesting. In terms of biology. 
A slight, slight aside, I'd just like to touch on this for a little bit while we still have some time. I know I noticed that your PhD is around the subject of autism spectrum disorder. Mm. So, so my, my stepbrother has very severe autism. He is nonverbal um, and he also has very severe epileptic seizures. And mm. as much as I have shared that I always knew I didn't want to be a parent, I think him coming along, being part of our family, made me look very, very closely and, 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 and through quite a harsh lens, I suppose, at my own, what I might term my parental readiness. Could I, if, if, if he was my child, would I have what it takes to raise a child like this? Just having seen what my father and my stepmother have experienced <laughs> as, his, as his primary caregivers, you know? Mm. Um, and so I have to admit that, yes, it has absolutely influenced my decision, particularly going through that late 30s, early 40s period. I too, like, Lots of women felt the, oh, it's now or never kind of moment. And I think um, having my brother be, be part of my life was another sort of another piece for me to take into consideration. Um, and I just it's a bit of an aside to kind of explain my interest in the subject, I suppose. But I have, you know, there has been a high kind of increase in incidences or diagnoses of autism spectrum disorder. And I wonder what you can share about why that is, actually. Um, my understanding is that it's through largely through sort of better diagnostics and better understanding of autism spectrum disorder. But I'd love to hear what you have to say um, on that subject as well. It's quite a difficult um, topic that I don't think, I don't think anybody has 100% the answer to it at the moment. For sure, we have a diagnosis of autism now, which when, certainly when I was at school just didn't exist. Yeah. But also the whole category of autism is now very wide. I mean, the, I think it's your stepbrother, the, the, that case you're describing is what I'd call classical. That's classical, old-fashioned, canners autism. And most people today are not talking about that. And certainly I can totally understand is what we say, the role of negative experiences. And certainly it's very sensible to think, well, what would you do? How would you cope um, if you if your child had a lot of behaviour? Because what I do, I'm seeing is, I'm seeing, I mean, I have friends who, who have children who's Behavior is very, very challenging and it's worth thinking about, you know, how, how would you deal with that? Um, but most people who are diagnosed with autism are not um, not anywhere like on that kind of, uh, that's actually, that's, that's re it used to be rare because that used to be autism. Right. Um, a lot of people now are quite high functioning. You, you know, mm. you'll find in most classes in school, there's probably one or two kids with a diagnosis. Then you go, might go to your special ed schools, but you're still talking about people who are a bit, they're not nonverbal. Um, most kids, you know, it's quite, a, it's, it's really a spectrum. We'll talk about spectrums. It has mm. become, they say, the spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. In fact, the mm -hmm. word disorder is, is starting to become redundant because, you know, now they talk about neurotypical and atypical, which is if you're going to look at this really broad part of that spectrum, talking about it as a disorder is, isn't really um, appropriate anymore. Right. Yeah. Uh, so it, it is a huge area. And, Evolutionary speaking, there's some interesting work and interesting theories about the fact that a lot of the traits are probably quite have been under positive selection because they are they are very useful in certain ways. You also they splinter in families. You probably know. I'm sure you've looked at it yourself. It's highly heritable, but it tends to be herit It's partibly heritable. So you 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 often have relatives that have bits of the profile. Um, it's fragmented. It's sort of like a jigsaw puzzle, and you might have one or two that really present strongly. You get a lot of a sort of mating. So you, you what you have is two kind of mosaic-y bits and pieces families suddenly come together and then you suddenly get, you know, a couple of mm. kids that are really um, presenting strongly. 
Um, I'm not sure how that answers your well, it's question. It's, it's, it is really fascinating just as a, yeah. as a general subject, I think. Um, and again, I have a, a personal sort of like vested interest in, in learning more about it. Um, and it made me think about recently, I noticed that there were some articles that came out that were talking about <laughs> um, introducing kind of... Um, prenatal testing for autism in the same way that we have prenatal testers and testing for down syndrome which in countries like norway which was one of the first countries to introduce prenatal testing for down syndrome there are now virtually no incidents of down syndrome because i think it's like 90 99 of women have the test and of them 95 (laughs) percent will choose to terminate the pregnancy if the the child is, is down syndrome and so it does bring up a really kind of fraught moral and sort of ethical debate around who gets to live. And I wonder, again, from this sort of evolutionary perspective, what is your take on these developments? It's difficult, isn't it? I mean, I have quite, I have, because this is where you put, it's difficult to separate personal views and professional views sometimes. Um, the idea that you might be counselling people to abort a child because it had an ASD um, finding I found deeply deeply problematic and Mm. you know I think for any of what you might call the brief behavioral disorders I mean something like down syndrome is quite a serious condition it has many many systemic and even that is controversial it's very controversial and uh, you know and that anything that that kind of sets a threshold bar I think for where these things are there are lots of other conditions like autism where people are talking about this i mean the idea that you could you we're, we're so far from having a prenatal test for autism i have to say um that i think that's a little fanciful quite frankly but there are other things in the same ballpark for which we almost certainly can and uh yeah kind of <laughs> makes me very leery to be honest yeah um, same yeah because like i'm saying i mean for a lot of these conditions you simply can't re- be sure what the child will really be like. I mean, if you're talking about the child themselves suffering, it's much more clear cut. And there are conditions where the suffering for the child, I think, makes the issue a lot. But what if you're really what you're talking about is whether the parents are going to suffer. If that's what you're talking about, well, really, you've got to really wonder, <laughs> you right. know, where are you going to draw the line? Are you going to see if they've got oppositional defiant disorder, which is pretty tricky? You know, if they've got extreme ADHD, where are you going to draw the line? Right, exactly, exactly. Which I guess comes back to for anybody considering parenthood to really consider, do I have what it takes to be a parent, you know, and and all that that might entail and to actually take the concept of parental readiness as it applies to things like my, my personality, not just to like my financial situation, my relationship status, but my personality and what I'm actually capable of in a caregiving (laughs) capacity and to be realistic about that and to, to sort of forgive yourself if you maybe fall short and actually decide that that's not, the sort of life that I could envisage for myself. I think that's really hard, isn't it? Because the, the reality is that you can't always know what's going to happen. You can't know how challenging your experience might turn out to be. Mm. And I thought that I'd had all of that. I thought I was completely, completely settled with all of that. And I have to say, watching other people go through the experiences a bit closer to me with some of the more challenging situations, you know, you realise, <laughs> I, I, I would still make the same decisions again but I, I realized that perhaps I was a little naive about whether you can really weather any storm when it comes to this kind of thing because no, and no matter how much you think you're at peace 
with whatever happens. I think for most people, I mean, some people are remarkably gifted in, in dealing with these kind of situations, but I think for most of us mere mortals, the chances, there's an outside chance that you will have a situation and somewhere down the line, there are going to be days where you sit back and think, oh, I've bitten off more than I can chew here. This, yeah. is, this is overwhelming. And I, I think, you know, people shouldn't, even if they've gone through those thoughts and, then, and yet that is the case, there are going to be some people for whom that, that is the case and uh, there should be more support for families in that situation for sure. And, you know, I think th- my heart goes out to them because I can understand it. I, I, I can envisage situations that I don't think I would rise to mm. particularly well. Mm. And uh, so it, it, it's definitely not the case that it's an equal experience for Absolutely. everybody. Well, again, for it sure. comes down to this idea of a spectrum. Like some people yeah. are going to be more resilient and capable in those mm. sorts of situations than others. And it doesn't make them better people necessarily. It just, you know, as you said, thank you. We are mere mortals. Yeah. You know, we're not all we're not all superhuman and um, we all have different capacities, different disadvantages, different aptitudes, you know. And I think, I don't know, part of what I want to seed in this book is just the idea that the most important thing perhaps is to really consider who am I? What am I here for? What am I what are my gifts, you know, um, and how can they be applied? How can I apply them in my life? Mm-hmm. regardless of whether I become a parent or not, you know? Yeah, I mean, there, there's this whole thing about looking at legacy where a man never has to choose between what kind of legacy. He can have his career, he can do everything else, and he can have a family. But when you look at college, they've done studies with college students and for the women, they are they have to choose and, and it puts it does impact their ideas about having a family because you can't, it's so difficult to do both, you know, I mean, would you be writing a book if you had a five, two five-year-olds in the house, you know, and this kind of thing, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to have to choose, but but I think most, a lot of people do want to have some kind of legacy and they think that having children will be that legacy. I think that might, is a bit misguided. Mm. Honestly, your children are like strangers. And if you can't accept that, one of the things you have to accept is that your children might be very, very different to you, might not feel like much of a legacy at all. And rather, you know, worrying about them being severely behaviorally difficult is, is nothing compared to the much more run of the wind problem of the fact that you just don't, that, don't they're not many you. They're not, they're not a mini you. You can't, and people yeah. think they're going to live out their legacy for their children. I think that's misguided. And so I think for a lot of women are waking up to the idea that, you know, there's lots of other things I could do, which are actually much more of a direct legacy. And I would feel very satisfied if I did this kind of particular profession, if I wrote a book, if I, you know, had these particular experiences, that would feel a lot more satisfying and it's completely in my control and I absolutely know what I'm getting. Absolutely. Thank you for for sharing that. And I completely agree and I feel that strongly. And of course, you know, every time I sort of say to myself, well, you know, I wouldn't be able to do the work that I do as an author and in this space, if I had children, I can find tons of examples of women who have five kids and have written New York Times bestsellers and also run a business. (laughs) You know, these sort of like outliers who are upheld in a way as the ideal normal that we should all be aspiring to. I just think it's completely unrealistic. No, it's not. It's, it's, I mean, it certainly isn't easy. I mean, when I was doing my PhD, I had a couple of senior academic women who were very, very helpful, very supportive. And I remember, I remember being marched across conferences at high speed when I was very, very pregnant. She said, oh, it's good for you. you know, keep going and, and telling me how the, you know, the breastfed her baby during departmental meetings and all of this kind of thing. And, and they've done very, very well. But, you know, most of us just are not quite in that league. <laughs> I, I always felt for me it was going to be, I didn't have the energy to do a top track 
kind of professional life like that and and the motherhood thing at the same time and I, I suspect most people fall into that camp and good on you if you manage to do both but uh and I good think on you if you choose one and that's enough and decide that yeah. that's enough for me, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, I think from, you know, I think holding that out as an idea and saying, well, super, look at these women. These women can do it all. It's absolutely fine. I think that's, un, it's unhelpful. <laughs> absolutely. To say the least. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate um, these insights that you've shared. It's sort of helped to, 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 to really kind of highlight um, and bring some more awareness around stuff that I've been grappling with myself. So wade through this manuscript. So I really appreciate it. Thanks again. Okay. It'll be interesting to see if, uh, what happens at the end with the project. That was my conversation with evolutionary biologist Gillian Ragsdale. I hope you enjoyed it. Please don't forget to rate and review the show wherever you're listening to help more people find the series. And please also share it with anybody you think could benefit from hearing what Gillian had to say. This podcast is edited and features original music by Allo Audio. That's A-L-O-E audio.com. <laughs>